if you say something like that, you're dead for the rest of your career. It's heads I win, tails you lose all the time with these people. I mean, this is off the bell-shaped curve pretty aggressively, and you would think that this would be very helpful in terms of telling the jury that this expert is doing this for the money. Hello out there, this is Rick Vicata. We're introducing Risk Management Monthly for the month of January. I know we're quite late, but it'll be worth the wait. Let me introduce our guest uh, today. Uh, Mark Calvert has been on the uh, show maybe three or four times over the, you know, the 10 years or so that we've been doing this. And uh, Mark is a defense attorney in the, uh, is it Houston, Mark? That you're Yes. I want to welcome you and thank you. I, we haven't seen each other for a good while, but you're looking well. And thank you. Uh, you too. I, want, I want to thank you for uh, joining us because we have a great thing. It's like we've got the the playbook of the uh, of the enemy of sorts. I was turned on to this uh, recording by Mike Ritter, who has re- sent us a number of things over the years. Mike's uh, an emergency physician down here in Orange County, and he. Uh, this recording was titled, titled, you got me discrediting defense paid expert witnesses. Now these guys never use the term expert. They call everybody a defense paid uh, opinion witness. So they use these four words all the time. Instead of saying expert, they, they, they don't even acknowledge that in the title. This was in a podcast called trial lawyer nation. It was an hour at, and it was in the, uh, July 31st, 2020 issue. It's uh, episode number three. If you want to listen, uh, it, there's two lawyers there who do plaintiff work. It's not just med mal, but pretty much anything that where there's an expert, but th- they, they, they focused on, I think, uh, experts. And so Mark is going to give us uh, his two cents on some of the items they brought out because it's really quite interesting that there's a very clear-cut strategy that these pe- folks use with the whole goal of discrediting the ac- expert. Mark, is that kind of your position? Oh, I'm sorry. Rachel's here. Rachel is, and Greg are here. I'm just so excited to talk to Mark. I just totally <laughs> yeah. ignore We're the- still here. Yeah. yeah, we're not chopped liver here, guy. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, we're excited to talk to Mark, too. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, what, what do you think about the whole concept of uh, having a strategy for attack, uh, discrediting the expert? Is that kind of the primary goal of your uh, of your efforts when you talk to these folks? Well, you know, first of all, thanks for including me on this. I'm excited to participate in this discussion, and I, I hope to help folks out there. Um, you know, this is a wrestling match for the 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 truth, uh, trying to seize uh, some some high ground in in the gray area that most medical cases are, and so yes, there's going to be strategies on how to try to impeach the other side's expert. I think, uh, and I, I I you know let me do a little bit of a disclaimer. I've defended healthcare providers since 1987. Uh, it is my passion. I still think y'all are the best profession. I'm not a homer for bad care. I don't like to see that. I don't like to defend it, but I do like to defend the great professional who did their best, 
who is in the arena that Teddy Roosevelt described and who is often being judged in hindsight by snipers. Um, I don't want to disparage uh, my brethren in the plaintiff's bar. I think that there are many medical cases, frankly, that are worthy and that should be pursued. Uh, so, you know, that's, it's not a, it's not a, I'm always right and they're always wrong type of thing. Um, I do sense when I look at this memo, a little bit of a level of disrespect and just cunning to try to trip up and, and trick. Um, they do need some strategy because plaintiffs have the burden of proving the case. So they know that most, uh, healthcare providers who are defendants in cases are going to have pretty good counsel and are going to arm themselves with some good some good experts. So yeah, they need to have a strategy to try to to erode that advantage. Well, you know, I think the items in this outline that I distilled from their tape is that these uh, techniques could also be used on the other side. It's they're not unique uh, to one side or the other. So um, we don't want you to spill you know, the, your, your secret sauce here necessarily. I mean, there, there may be other people listening here, but well, Greg, you probably have a fair amount of, uh, expertise in this area as well, because you've probably been deposed a few times. Yeah, I think I've been deposed 800 or <laughs> between that and trial testimony. Um, and let me tell you, there's lots of things you learn early on one of them is the deposition is not a search for the truth. Uh, and anybody who thinks the trial situation is a search for the truth, uh, you need to have your head examined. This is looking for the strangest stuff, screw ups. They go back occasionally and talk to your fifth grade teacher. I mean, they'll go, they'll do kind of anything in conversation. One thing for sure is in deposition as opposed to trial testimony, a lot of it never makes it to the trial. And so they're willing to go in a lot of different directions and ask a lot of strange questions, which you have no idea why they're asking these things. And, and, and they've done, I've actually had one plaintiff's attorney who said, we had two people working four months, you know, trying to find these various people that you'd worked for in the past. They spend real money on these things, and they're looking for things that you're not expecting. And they'll ask all kinds of strange questions, and they're put in such a way that the most important thing an expert can do is listen to the question. I don't know what what uh, Mark thinks about this, but they but make sure you understand what's being asked because the danger is the expert who wants to go off on his own or her own and start and start adding things to the case. A dangerous thing to do, I promise you. Rachel, any thoughts before I get started into the specifics of this? No, I'm ready to jump in. Um, you know, the first thing they talk about, and, I, and I've heard this before, is that uh, the attorneys will uh, 
review the expert's uh, CV. Th these folks just will not call anybody an expert. Everything's in quotes or something like that. So they want to review the CV to see uh, what organizations you belong to, particularly uh, to see if any of those have a standard of ethics. Mark, do you ever go to that um, issue of organizations and ethical standards that uh, you kind of uh, uh, agree to uphold as a member of an organization? Yes, we've done that. And I think they probably, meaning when I say they, the plaintiff's attorneys have probably seen us do that enough to where it uh, puts them on guard. The reason that we started it is because uh, there's a tendency to take advantage by testifying experts, particularly with hindsight bias and taking things out of context and also making leaps of faith with respect to causation. And so I think, um, uh, you know, American board of whatever, or, um, you know, different, uh, different specialty groups uh, set forth some guidelines and standards to try to keep their members in check, to not be speculative, to not be subjective in their testimony, to not make uh, assumptions that are unfair or not scientifically based. But that is actually the the arena that endangers the plaintiff's case because they're the ones that have to prove things. So we have long attacked experts, particularly ones who are serial testifiers and members of a group. And we will say, here are the governing guidelines for testifying for your agency, for your group, whatever. Um, do you feel like you're being objective in this case? Do you feel like you are open for uh, uh, your opinion to evolve based on new information? Whatever the bullet <laughs> points are, and we get them to commit to that. And then we will say, have you seen the deposition of Dr. So-and-so, the subsequent treater? No, I haven't. Okay. So you don't know what he said. No, I don't. Are you open to the idea that he may have testified in a way that could affect your opinion in this case? per these guidelines of the organization you're a member of. And that gets us a little bit of a foothold to start to to unravel some of their um, um, dogma and their and their uh, uh, you know their their positions which are not really uh, based on on uh, well-grounded science. So yeah, we've used that tactic. They clearly are going to use it too. I don't think we have anything to fear on that. And what I would say to people who are listening who do defense work testifying or who are a defendant, yes, adhere to the guidelines of the groups that you join. And it's usually very lofty principles. And it talks about fairness and ob objectivity and reviewing all the information. Uh, that's not hard to meet. I don't think that that's some big kill shot that they that they that they mention. The bigger picture is, Anybody who's testifying, whether you're a defendant or an expert or a fact witness, you may be a treater before or after and you're involved, be aware that they're going to do at minimum an internet search on you. They are going to Google your name and see what comes up. And so if you were arrested, if you wrote an article 25 years ago, uh, they'll look at the value of your house. They can find out that information, the cars you have, divorces you've experienced. They are looking for needles and haystacks. And, and, and we do the same thing. I've got a deposition this Friday of a nursing expert, 
and we are um, <clears throat> turning over every rock to try to find things because guess what? There's a lot out there on most people, particularly people who have um, strong enough opinions about themselves that they feel that they can testify on anything and insert, uh, you know, kind of some controversy. They usually have had controversy in other areas. These folks uh, basically would like to get the uh, expert to acknowledge that they belong to these organizations and that as a re and and that they agree with the expert uh, the uh, ethical standards. And so when they when the uh, lawyers think that they may be drifting from those uh, ethical standards, they want to go back and say, well, you agreed to uh, follow this. And I, we, the fact is you may be straying from the, uh, from your ethical standards so that um, jurors could basically say, uh, this fellow may be acting a little bit unethically or this, or this woman. Um, so the, even when they ask you just simple things about, you know, where did you go to school and, and those kinds of things, which sound really benign, this is the beginning of a a, a process which, at the end, the goal is to uh, make it clear that uh, this person is not as uh, ex uh, not as much of an expert as it may be, and in fact that there is some perhaps some eth ethical issues here. Yeah, and I just would jump in on that um, for those who are being cross-examined in that way. I would emphasize that these are typically labeled as guidelines, uh, usually not labeled as requirements. And if they are labeled as standards or rules or requirements, something that's a little bit beyond a guideline, then the wording is typically somewhat open-ended and vague and lofty in the principles. So I would not accept the attorney's uh, recitation that we are not complying with the guidelines. I would say, well, that's how you interpret it, but that's not how I interpret it. The, the guideline number one talks about being objective. I think I am being objective. I've reviewed the records. I've reviewed the testimony, and this is my experience, and this is what the literature says, and this is my opinion. I am being objective. So don't just give that ground that you haven't complied with the guidelines and label them as such. They are guidelines. Um, I don't think they can mm – -hmm win that battle, I, maybe they're trying to intimidate you as a testifier that there's going to be some kind of trouble uh, with the group that you're a member of because they're going to tattle on you and say that you weren't ethical or whatever. But as long as you, ha as long as the facts and the science can support what you're offering or, or that there is an, a, a legitimate argument for what you are offering, how's that unethical? I mean, it's not. I think no Go ahead, uh, Rachel. I was going to say, I think knowing that this is a strategy is is really important for helping people prepare as they're going into court. I just pulled up ASEP's uh, guidelines on expert witness testimony. And so the clause that I can imagine could be brought up to somebody says, physicians should not provide expert testimony solely for financial gain, lest this unduly influence their testimony. So I can imagine you sitting there and having that said to you. And if you're not expecting it, that kind of feeling like a slap in the face. But I think if you know this is a strategy that's going to be used, um, I know that actually the clause that precedes that is, while reasonable compensation for a physician's time is, eth is ethically acceptable, 
physicians should not provide it solely for financial gain. You know, I think as long as you're prepared for this, you know, it's just a strategy, you know, it's coming. Um, then I think you'll, you'll just be able to kind of roll with it. So I, I think this conversation is really helpful for people that are going to potentially be in this situation to just kind of understand it's just to rattle me and it's not going to work. And one of the questions we always ask that I do at least is I will say, is receiving remuneration for your for your expert efforts at least one reason why you do this? And they will almost always say, yes, that is one reason. That's good enough for me. Now, I've had them say, yeah, that's why I do it. <laughs> and then I will kind of exploit the ethical argument of, well, now, come on, that's why you do it. I mean, so they're paying you and you'll say anything. Uh, and that's really the genesis of the impeachment is it's our feeling. If, I, if I'm representing, uh, you know, Dr. Henry or Dr. Lindor and I feel like, the other side has um, a prostitute on their hands, a, 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 an expert prostitute. You're darn right I'm going to raise that card that they're doing this for money. Uh, yeah. you know, and typically they're not from the same area, so there's no repercussions to them professionally, and they just take a, sw a free swing at my client. You're darn right I'm in that arena, and I'm going to start wielding that sword. And anything I can do to make to expose that, I feel like that's an obligation. I'm going to expose that because I think that, uh, you know, there's a there's a, a love of money, and it seems to be the root of a lot of evil. Do you uh, ask them, have they been in, uh, an expert before, and, and approximately how often or how many times has that occurred? to uh, make it look like, uh, help make it look like uh, they're, they're doing this for the money? Absolutely. Uh, and there are databases now, as you can imagine, where you can uh, track down many of those uh, expert experiences. You can obtain prior depositions. You can get a list. Um, it, it, the other thing that I do is is I'll talk about their testimonial history. How long have you done this? Usually plaintiffs experts, it's very lopsided and they will do it just for plaintiffs. Defense experts, um, yeah, they they may lean towards doing it for defendants, but often there's a little bit more of a, a willingness to to do both. So when I find a plaintiff's expert who I can tell has never testified for a defendant, uh, that's where we can show bias. Um, I recently deposed a dental expert. I wish I could send you the transcript and we could go through it, but it was both sad and um, amazing at the concessions he made. He's an older guy, uh, absolutely conscienceless, was writing reports based on verbal summaries given. Uh, was not reviewing records until right before his deposition. And we're talking about having committed in a report months earlier to opinions, not reviewing things, testifying outside his arena. And I, the other thing I do is I say, how often have you worked with this particular attorney? Because all of us kind of go to our go-to guys. You know, when, when Dr. Henry does a great job for me, 
Uh, he's, you know, somebody that I'm going to go to. He'll tell me he's a straight shooter. He'll tell me good, bad, or ugly. And if he can help me, I'll use him. All lawyers are kind of like that. And we fall into some ruts. We go to the same restaurants. We use the same experts. But when I deposed this dental expert and he told me that he had testified for this particular attorney a hundred times, <laughs> uh, and we had found 15 so I was going to confront him with that, but he did better than that. He said, oh, yeah, I've worked with him on probably 100 cases. Um, it was just jaw-dropping. I mean, just just kind of this um, just inability to see that there was a lack of integrity, never really declining a case. The other thing we did, I did in that deposition is – not only is this guy kind of working part-time and he's earning a lot of money as an expert, but I found out other ways that he earns money. And he just gladly told me he has a timber farm, you know, 50 miles outside of Houston, 80, 80 acre timber farm. He has a bunch of, uh, apartment complexes. I mean, this guy has a ton of revenue streams. And so I'm already building in my mind how I'm going to go in front of the jury and say, this is just another way for this man to earn money. He is hurting a colleague. And I had the dentist sitting next to me. So picture kind of a KKK 78-year-old guy across from me. And I have a young African-American dentist sitting next to me. And I tell you, I'm going after that guy like you can't believe. Now, here's something that's interesting. We shelled him. And they had to walk away from that case. Well, I had some other dental cases with the same plaintiff's attorney. Guess what? He dropped him as an expert in those cases, too, because <laughs> we had really caved him in. So, you know, yeah, there's a no holds barred situation. One of the things I'd like a takeaway to be for those that are listening to this is clean up your CV. You know, I remember years ago when Notre Dame hired a new football coach and it turned out some of his stuff on there wasn't accurate and they had to pull away the job offer because people exposed it. You know, if you didn't fight in Vietnam, don't put that you fought in Vietnam. You know, I mean, it's just not worth it. People are going to investigate that stuff. So if you didn't do a fellowship and whatever, don't put that you did. Don't don't skip over something where you left the general surgery residency and jump to something else. Don't skip that because they're going to find out that you did it and they're going to say, why didn't you put it on your CV? I mean, on serious cases, people are going to drill down on your biography and your CV on the, the website. I've had a bunch of cases lately where plaintiff's attorneys will pull up. I mean, it's very easy, obviously, uh, you know. Uh, Rachel was able to pull up the ASEP guidelines as we were talking. So, you know, you could pull up anybody's biography, their group website, and in in minutes you can see a lot of mistakes. Number one, you, the the biographies are puff pieces. I would say calm that down. There's really no reason for it. Are you really getting business because you're dramatically overstating your skill set or what kind of surgeries you do or what kind of work you do? The other thing that doctors make a mistake on all the time, I think, is they um, they make too many promises and, and kind of assurances on their website as if they're hawking for business. Um, you know, when I when I present a plastic surgeon for deposition and he has, you know, 
basically overplayed or overstated what they're going to be able to do. We're going to be able to turn you into a centerfold model. We're going to be able to, you know, no one can do better than this. You will be, you know, bikini worthy after you're done with this surgery. I mean, all these things which don't really turn out to be true and are fodder for cross-examination. And so that's the defendant, but the expert has the same vulnerability. When your website and your curriculum vitae are not precise and accurate, you're going to get exposed when they're cross-examining you. And this, my cousin did this, and I don't really look at my website excuse, that has an odor to it. And that that's the thing that a plaintiff's attorney can do, and really all of us do, all of us attorneys do this, is you just pick your poison. If you're going to say, no, I didn't look at this, and so I didn't know that I was overstating that I do stem cell stuff and that it has magic, magical cures, you're not looking at your stuff. You're out there drawing in patients with with promises that you can't meet and you don't look at that. That's reckless, doctor. Isn't that reckless? I mean, whatever path you choose is bad. So what's the best thing? Don't have it on the website. Don't have it in your curriculum vitae. Don't say you can do this. I'm defending a doctor right now. And one of the criticisms is that in the past, he had said something about having the highest score on the MCAT or something. And they have haunted him with that because it's not true. So it goes to the credibility in a lot of different areas. So the listeners, I would say, is right now, sterilize your curriculum vitae, your website. Make sure it's accurate. Don't overpromise. Uh, Mark, do you ever uh, ask with the... Uh fees are that these experts are charging absolutely and and some of the fees are high you know, look um as you can tell <laughs> i take this pretty personal i mean this is what i do and i feel like when i'm defending a healthcare provider it's like them helping me with the cancer you know i experienced a couple years ago i mean i want them in my foxhole and i want i I, I don't expect them to weep like my family would weep, but I want to see kind of a grim, you know, Eisenhower-like determination on their, on their face that they're going to win this. And so I want to give that same kind of effort to my healthcare provider. So we do everything we can to paint what I think is an accurate picture, which is most experts who are testifying against doctors are going to cut some corners. Most of them do. And that's how they earn their money. And these cases are usually not that not that clear cut. And so for them to make them clear cut, I'm going to expose that. So I do ask them how much they earn. And there's another way. It's not just the hourly rate that they charge, but it's also the amount of hours that they put in. And so what I'll see is, oh, yeah, I charge $350 an hour or $400 an hour, which, you know, is is a is a kind of a moderate, reasonable range that kind of passes the smell test. But then they'll spend 47 hours on a case that probably requires about five hours of review. <laughs> and so that's the other way that they're uh, uh, kind of taking advantage. And we'll expose that. We'll say, well, your bill here talks about 10 hours of literature search, and you've brought two articles that I also found in a 20-second PubMed, you know, hit. Uh, you're telling me you spent 10 hours looking for articles? Yes, I did. Well, and then I, then I kind of got them, and I say, and in 10 hours, the only two you could find are these 
and they don't really apply, do they? So they've shot themselves in the foot either way. But yeah, the, the amount that they're earning is, um, I definitely try to, to, uh, expose that. And, and here's another little nugget for people who are doing defense work. Um, to everybody who's listening, who's a good, solid healthcare provider, I know that this is a stinky arena. I would submit to you that it's a bit of an active service to be involved in at least one case a year so that the citizens of this nation have the good doctors in the arena and not just the ones who enjoy the stench. So come in even though you don't enjoy it. The other thing I would say is this, and I had a cardiologist expert say this the other day. He's the head of the department. He's a big dog and he's busy. And you know what he said is he said, I'm not going to charge you for this. What I'm doing is the right thing and that's why I'm doing it. And I don't need this extra money. Now, let me tell you something. When I put that type of situation in front of a jury, they start to lean forward a little bit because Greg is exactly right. The lawyers may not be that interested in the truth. And the first casualty of war is truth, right? But the juries are interested in truth. And they know the attorneys are trying to fool them a little bit. And so are the experts. That's their suspicion. So when you have an expert come in and said, yeah, I have spent 25 hours on this and I haven't charged a penny. Look, I know that a lot of people listening can't just do that. So charge a reasonable rate. But on occasion, if you can say, you know what, this is just an offering. This is just a service, an act of service to do something right. And in fact, frankly, when it's super duper obvious negligence and somebody really has botched something up, don't charge the plaintiff either. Testify honestly in that situation because that underscores an earnestness and an integrity and a sincerity that I think is uh, a difference maker for a lot of jurors. Uh, that's really interesting. Uh, I think the, the vast majority of uh, physicians the, the money that they would make on a couple of cases a year probably is not going to change their lifestyle one bit. And the ability to say, well, I'm doing it because it's the right thing is just kind of awfully powerful information. It's unbelievable. Correct. And I've had it happen at trial and I can see the look on the jury's faces. It's like, we are desperately trying to figure out what to do with this. This is an unfamiliar arena. And we've got a person who has come in and said, I'm not charging and we believe him. The other kind of dirty little secret, and it happens on both sides, the, the defense isn't that we don't have as clean of hands as, we, as we'd like to have. But I think what happens with some plaintiff's experts is they'll have some kind of nominal charge on the front, but really they keep an eye on what the case settles for or what the jury verdict is, and then they submit their true bill. It's almost like they work on a contingent fee basis. And I will try to expose that when I'm taking a deposition. You know, are, are, is your payment in any way dependent upon what the plaintiff gets in settlement? Because guess what? I think many times it is. That's that's some of the the odor that we smell is that's the smoke filled rooms is, hey, if you get a million dollars versus 500,000, then I will take double what I'm going to do this for. And yeah, that kind of <laughs> wait, crap. Wait a minute. On. Have you ever heard anybody admit to that? 
I've never heard anybody say that. Now, I've thought it uh, with some of my colleagues, but I've, holy Jesus, if you say something like that, you're dead for the rest of your career, I yeah. would think. Well, you know, maybe 20 years ago, but I think that the that there's kind of a, you know, an and no rules right now on a lot of different things. I have not had an expert confess to that. I've had, I've heard plaintiff's attorneys intimate it. And it is asked enough by defense attorneys where we, we can sniff it out a little bit, you know? So, so you're a, a, an expert who works almost exclusively with this lawyer and you've only charged $1,500 so far on a very serious case it um, defies common sense. Mm -hmm. And so you know that they're going to get something later, but they want that fee that they can testify to. Yeah, I've only gotten $1,500. That's all I've charged. But they may get $25,000 if they get a big settlement. And so I think those winky blinkies happen. And, and I have an obligation as an attorney to raise that, the specter of that to the jury and frankly so do the my my brethren and sisters in the in the plaintiff's bar i mean if you know are there are there defendant experts who are insurance whores for lack of a better phrase of course there are you know we know that i mean this is you know it's not again it's not a we're right all the time and they're wrong all the time approach but i will boomerang back to my main point is that is plaintiff's attorneys have the burden of proof. So this is a very gray area fog of war battle. They have to prove. And, and, and as I was mentioning to you guys off the record before we started, I have an emergency medicine case right now where um, saw the guy, he's having chest pain. We felt it was something else, chest wall pain, um, discharged him. Two hours later, he collapsed and died. Uh, there was a hundred percent blockage of a right coronary artery and their pitch is you missed this and you should have intervened and it would have changed the outcome. Well, let me tell you what I think is very hard. We're talking about a small community outside of Houston. We're not talking about the medical center. It, I, let's assume he suspects a heart condition. Tell me how quickly somebody's going to accept that transfer that the transfer is going to happen and that he's going to be in a cath lab all within two hours. Um, pretty hard to prove, pretty hard to prove. So uh, that puts pressure on the plaintiff's attorneys. And right then they have to start amplifying, cutting corners, taking things out of context because the, that's what they have to show. That 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 if the if he had thought it was a heart attack, he could have taken action and changed the outcome. That's the definition of causation: is different course would have resulted in a better result, essentially, and that's hard to do. So, this is why I think plaintiffs' attorneys and plaintiffs' experts um, stretch things more because they have to show that we don't. But we're going to raise a lot of issues about you know that doesn't happen. And people die of heart attacks in ambulances all the time. And they die of heart attacks in hospitals all the time. And they're doing the catheterization and somebody perforates an artery. And that happens because I've defended those cases. And what is the criticism of the plaintiff and the plaintiff's expert? Why'd you do the catheterization? They didn't need that. 
They totally judge it on the result. <laughs> right. It's like, wait a second. I, six months ago in a different case, you're telling me I needed to rush them to a catheterization. Now there's a complication with the catheterization and you're critical of the catheterization. It's heads I win, tails you lose all the time with these people. And so, yes, we're going to do what we can to undercut the credibility of some of these people who are making those kinds of leaps of faith. You know, I, I, this just yesterday, I came across this. This is uh, from a service called MedMal Reviewer. Uh, Eric Funk started this maybe about five years ago, and now he's got he's reviewing, uh, presenting cases in all kinds of specialties, but in, he's an emergency physician. And he uh, found a case where the experts' uh, fees were um, were listed and these are actual fees. I, I have a fee scheduled by this uh, expert. Uh, $3,000 for the initial review of a case, $6,000 for a one-hour deposition, $15,000 for the first day of court testimony. I mean, this is off yeah. the bell-shaped curve uh, pretty aggressively, and you would think that this would be very helpful in terms of telling the jury that this expert is doing this for the money. It, it really is. And, and to piggyback that, Rick, because you're exactly right. The, the, the thing that I like to show a jury is, uh, or expose with the expert is, let's see, you're critical of my doctor who had the patient for 90 minutes. You have spent 37 hours on this matter. We had 90 minutes. You had the result at your side. My doctor didn't. And you've earned $22,000 and he earned 150. <laughs> and I think that, Pretty I think powerful. that that, I think that shows they're taking advantage of something here and they're hurting somebody who's trying their best. Now I'll, I'll kind of, you know, come back to what I said. I'm not a homer for bad care. And when I sense that one of my clients is cutting corners, is not interested, is not displaying caring, is not doing their best, it's hard to give them that same level of passion, you know, uh, because this is a, a little bit of a game of musical chairs and the music's going to stop and it's going to be a bad case. And it's like me being, you know, smacking, uh, smoking four packs a day and drinking a six pack a day and, you know, having diabetes and being um, way overweight and not giving a darn and then coming to you and saying, help me, doctor, save me. And you're often going to be able to pull a rabbit out of a hat, maybe for the short term. But doctors, when your records are poor, when your bedside manner is poor, when you're cutting corners, when you're trying to figure out um, almost a money-making scheme with respect to Medicare and Medicaid and some of these other things, or using underqualified mid-levels and staff that shouldn't really be doing what they're doing, and then you come to me and say, help me, I will try my best to help you but you have created a problem for yourself. And frankly, anybody who testifies to defend some of those things, they're going to be skewered. Those things will be exposed. Now with electronic health records where footprints are left as to when timing of things are made, you know, they can look at billing entries and the codes and all of these things. Um, a, lot of, a, a lot of schemes, a lot of corner cutting will be exposed. And frankly, the citizens of today aren't going to put up with it. 
I, 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 I plead with healthcare providers to, to, to stop doing that, or you're going to be in an arena that you cannot prevail in. And the process of it will be um, like crawling over glass before you finally get an execution. And it's a terrible situation. So please don't play around with it. And that's the same with doctors who are using drugs or who are messing around somehow in their drug prescriptions. I mean, we're, we're defending a, you know, a doctor right now who he was prescribing drugs to his patient and then having them give him back the drugs so that he could use them or that family could use them. Now, that stuff eventually gets exposed and it got exposed. And how do you defend that? <laughs> right? You don't need any super creative strategy on deposing my expert in that case, right? That's a fish in the barrel deal. So help yourself. You know, the, the great film, Jerry Maguire, help me help you. You know, <laughs> I mean, I can't help you when you are playing fast and loose. I can help you when there's strain on your face from how hard you've worked. You know, I've defended surgeons who have said, you don't understand. I slept in the guy's room that night after surgery. I was there at 4 a.m. cleaning up vomit. I was doing everything I could to help this guy. This was like a war situation. I can get pretty worked up in front of a jury defending somebody who's done that. But when it's, yeah, I had my medical assistant go in and see the patient. I didn't see the patient. And yeah, there was a problem going on, but it was Saturday night and I had theater tickets. Hey, I mean, I, <laughs> you're, you, I mean the jury's going to, they're, they're not going to be happy. You know, I have a question. I, I'll go ahead, Rachel. Sorry, I was going to say a question regarding your encouragement for people to jump in in these defense cases. Uh, two questions, actually. How many hours on average do you think people, physicians, have to be involved as defense experts for a typical case? Yeah, so, you know, it, some of it depends on on the complexity of the issues in the records. Yeah. You know, um, if it's a 45-page ER chart, that's different than a 4,500, you know, two-week hospitalization thing. Um, one thing that helps is most attorneys who do this have nurse paralegals and they can get a pretty good summary together. And so I, I've actually got a case where it's 4,600 in hospital records, but really the key records we've been able to summarize to about a 20 page flow chart of stuff. And when you meet with the expert and go over that, what we do is we say, I'm going to give you a link to every record in this patient's history, mm -hmm. but here's the important stuff. Tell me your thoughts. And if they lean towards supporting, then we we work with them and the time that they spend is kind of up to them. Um, you know, I would think, you know, let's just and it's a great question and let's just kind of map this out a little bit. I think the initial review where you have a good good or bad feeling about the care can be done within an hour or two. Okay. Uh, and and then. Uh, reviewing depositions and things like that, there's no way that you need to review every part of every deposition. The mm -hmm. attorney can guide you to the key points. This is what mm -hmm. my doctor said he found at surgery. I mean, how long does that take to review? You know, that might take 20 minutes. But if you have an hour or two at the beginning 
And then in the midst of it, you have your deposition and reviewing depositions. That's probably going to be something on the order of 10 hours. Let's say you give a three-hour deposition and you spent five hours getting ready. So that's eight hours there. It usually is done at that point. If you have to end up going to trial, you'll make an appearance at trial. Some attorneys who don't know what they're doing will have you on for a long time. But my expert, I will have on for an hour. They'll be cross-examined for an hour, and then they're done. So you're looking at something less than 15 hours. And the okay. other thing that I would argue is um, get involved in this, particularly if you're like, I don't know anything about it. Well, let me tell you, you don't want to find out about the system when it's your case. I mean, that's just a harder way to learn the system. So I would say if you're thinking, well, I've been able to dodge lawsuits – and I, or, I'm, and, or I'm relatively young and I haven't been exposed to very much of this, that's, that's the perfect time to get in. Because yeah. then you can see where do these, where, where, where do the attacks come from? Where are the vulnerabilities? Yeah. And it will improve your game. Your records all of a sudden will get better. How you interact with patients will get better. How, how you, what you tell your staff to do will get better because you'll see how pretty skilled attorneys will try to exploit those things to build their case against a doctor. Yeah. So yeah, I can't, I can't tell you how much better a doctor I became when I'd done 20, 30, 40 medical legal cases, uh, which had some of the same elements. I would see patients come in the door. I'd done a case on that. And, and I'd kind of look to myself and say, you know what? Here's what I got to make sure I do in this case. It, it was a wonderful learning experience for me just for my practice. And I, I think that it is useful for doctors to understand how it works. So where do people who want to take your advice get involved? There's a few different ways. Um, most uh, one, one area to start, I think, is to go to your licensing board. Uh, so Texas Medical Board. They need reviewers. And there are some areas that are very short. That is a great area to get exposed to it. And usually the reviews are done in a confidential way or actually anonymous to, to the to the doctor who's being investigated and you can review you can draft report you can see issues there and they'll actually pay usually they they pay the reviewers you know a, a decent amount so I think that's a, a good place to start another one is um, to go to your insurance company um, there's great insurance companies and you can go to them and say I am interested in doing reviews now, not necessarily for them, but for their counsel and lawyers that they use. Or you can go to your insurance company and say, who are on the panel of defense attorneys in my area? So in Houston, you could you could go to an insurance company that you're insured with and say, who are your defense counsel in Houston? And then you contact them and say, I don't know if you need help in emergency medicine or gastroenterology or internal medicine, but I would be interested in reviewing cases. And it starts out with a review, and then eventually you'll give a, a deposition. Um, I think that it is very beneficial to you as a doctor because this stuff is not going away. 
It's it's just with the advent of technology and everything else and the aging population and, and people being much more aware of being able to make complaints and file lawsuits based on the Internet, doctors are going to be in the crosshair. So they need to have some familiarity with the system. And so I, I encourage involvement. But the other benefit is um, those of us who are lay people, we knew, need the Rachel Lindors of the world as experts on occasion. Otherwise, it devolves down to the circus acts and the carnival barkers, and you just can't really tell who's who's telling us the truth on this. I feel, I mean, there's an old adage in in medicine that uh, you know the the or medical legal cases, the plaintiff has the sympathy, the defendant has the science. We really try to ex exploit our advantage in the scientific realm. So I want. Greg Henry, I want Rick Bucata, I want Rachel Lindor, because you guys are going to be able to neutralize sympathy, emphasize science, and paint my doctor as the rescuer that she is versus the perpetrator of wrongdoing. And so let we me, try to outrun tell you, the other side all the time. Let me tell you the story of a uh, doc who went back and got a law degree, and he thought he was God's gift to medical legal. Well, first of all, most of what you learn in law school has nothing to do with med legal cases. Secondly, he sort of pushed that. And the first time I saw him deposed, the guy said, do I call you doctor or, or lawyer? Because you're both, aren't you, doctor? In fact, isn't it true, doctor, you went back to law school after medical school so you could do this kind of work? Is that right, doctor? Did we ask you, doctor, to come in here and testify to law? Did anybody ask you about, uh, about this case or that case? Nobody asked you about any of those sorts of things, did they, doctor? Uh, and... <laughs> I watched this happen so many times. Uh, you know, I never went back to get a law degree. I had a lot of I had a lot of interest in the law, but that one deposition <laughs> cured convinced <you>. <laughs> me. <laughs> the last thing I want is to listen to some jerk uh, try and. Uh, give you a bad time because you got a little more education. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure, Mark, you've seen similar cases. Absolutely. And, and, um, there are, I mean, I know I couldn't have gotten through medical school. I think almost all doctors could get through law school. I don't know why they would want to do it. And, but, but the general rule in our field is those that, you know, obtain a law degree in addition to a medical degree aren't very good at either. And <laughs> usually they're, um, they're either bored or they don't have enough work. And <laughs> you're right. We can, we can exploit that and make them kind of look bad to the jury. You realized you just, uh, you just took Rachel, <laughs> Rachel and pimp slapped her a few times here, but, nothing, uh, nothing that, personal Rachel, nothing, it, nothing. This is just a generality. You know? yeah, I, I understand. I, I've seen great ones. And like I say, I mean, when you have a nimble and very good mind um people can do it i don't know why they'd want to but people can do it and they can do it well but uh 
Look, I, you know, I can't see you over there. You've backpedaled so far. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, you know, in this example where I gave you those ridiculous fees. Yes. I didn't know that you could do this, but uh, lawyers can go back and uh, ask the judge to um, modify these fees if, in fact, they think that they are out. egregious or the like. And in this case, that's exactly what they did. The, um, and the judge said, okay, we're going to allow you to charge $1,350 an hour. The judge basically set the fees of the expert who was charging all of this, this money. And, uh, I didn't know that you could do that, but apparently at least in some places you can. Yeah. I Rick, think it's I've probably a state this. by state basis. I've been involved in these things where uh, the judge has been asked to get involved in uh, how many hours they say they spend on a case, all this kind of stuff. When you're down at that level, that's this is the last thing most most attorneys want to see played out in front of a jury. They don't want that kind of stuff on either side because it's ugly. It, it I, Mark, you must have you must have seen some bills come in which would would uh, fry you. I mean, unbelievable. Well, you I, know, I, we've been taking advantage before, and that's one of the reasons why we do what is called the thumbnail sketch. I, I had an ankle case one time, and the doctor wanted a guy out of out of a I won't name the city, probably give away who it was, but some <laughs> preeminent expert in a city. And he agreed to review it, said, box everything up, send it to us. Uh, And so we sent him a box of records and he said, I've reviewed the records. Now I just need to see a a key x-ray. And we found that x-ray and sent it to him. And he said, yeah, that's what I suspected. I can't support your case. Here's a bill for $10,000. And I learned, I said, you know what? He just needed the x-ray on the front end. That's all he needed to see. <laughs> he didn't review any of those records, you know, and, and it, it, it frustrated me. And that was on the defense side. So look, I, we cannot legislate morality by, by doctors, in any regard, and and certainly which ones choose to do plaintiff's work, expert uh, defense work, or both. Um, but to be fair, I would like to encourage folks to to um, not look at it as a, a money making venture. I think it does taint things. I think it does create a bias, and that's the other thing. I know we don't have a ton of time left, but. Uh, one thing that we emphasize a lot is the notion of hindsight bias. Uh, most of these cases are judged in hindsight. I mean, if we use emergency medicine, if you cover up any of the subsequent records, gosh, a lot of that care seems very reasonable and most experts support it. But when you take your hand away and three days later, the baby's fever spiked and they died on the way to the, uh, to the hospital, they're going to hang that emergency room doctor. And it's like, why? I mean, can't, shouldn't we judge them based on what they knew at the time? Um, and, and so the hindsight bias to me is something that I would like to see experts really try to discipline themselves and not be influenced by that because the, the outcome bias is, is grotesque, frankly, in the judging of healthcare providers. One of the best experts I've ever worked with, um, emergency doctor who says when they send him a case, 
All he wants are the original records. He doesn't want to know what happened because he wants to make an opinion based on what that doctor saw that night or that day. And he doesn't want to, he doesn't, he, he, in fact, he won't take a case where somebody says this kid died. Or they, he said, nope, you send me this or this. In fact, I had a, another attorney who had a couple cases dummied up, which he also sent to a doc. He had no intention of taking those cases, but he wanted to see what they thought they needed to solve the problem. <laughs> and he said, if you need to know the outcome, then you don't understand what we're trying. The outcome is not what we try at, at uh, trial. It's what you did with what you got. And, and, and what I, you knew at the time. And what you knew at the time. And I think that's yeah. exactly right. You know, in hindsight, well, I, I'm the best doctor I know. <laughs> well, exactly. And, and you know, um, similar to an emergency medicine case, to me are the radiology cases. And so when I go to a radiologist and say, well, you review this and see if, if our doctor had a, had a reasonable interpretation, they always smile and say, well, we know something happened because you're here. Right. And so if we have the time, the better way to do it is, doctor, I have a case and I want you to review x-rays and I'm providing you 10 x-rays and they're from 10 different patients, 10 different things. You don't know which one is at issue in the lawsuit. And we get a much fairer reading. And almost all the time, our radiologist had interpreted reasonably and within the standard of care. But when you know the outcome, oh, you know, I can trace back now that I know that she has breast cancer. I can, there's a speck five years earlier on that <laughs> mammogram that they should have suspected. That's just not fair. No. And uh, so we we emphasize to our experts to to use fairness. But whether you testify for the defense or for the plaintiff, I like the tried and true tr traits of being fair, being civil, being humble, uh, not condescending. I mean, some of the things that are mentioned in this this outline of the podcast by the plaintiff's attorneys, um, you know, that there there's just kind of an attitude of disrespect and they try to exploit the expert to be disrespectful. There's no reason to be disrespectful. There, there, there's, I mean, you know, there, you don't have to devolve into this being some kind of, um, food fight, some, some screaming match across, across a cafeteria table. Uh, you voice your opinion, you base it on the science and then, and that you're reasonable. Um, I do think doctors tend to judge other doctors too harshly, particularly in certain areas, plastic surgery jumps to mind. And uh, I, I would hope that those listening to this would check themselves a bit and try to be careful on how they judge. Mark, uh, one of the other things in this uh, broadcast was the idea that jurors like to come up with their conclusions about the veracity of the expert. And it's important not to be too aggressive in demeaning the demeaning the expert because um, they're all human beings and you know if they see somebody get, getting beaten up uh perhaps excessively um they may they may get some sympathy on the part of uh of the expert because um they want to judge how uh, fair this person has been or not been they also say it's kind of like um 
if you demean an expert and the expert said something that will support your case, it's kind of like you can't have it both ways. You've demeaned the expert and now you're relying on what they said uh, to support your case and at least a part of their deposition. So that becomes difficult as well, they said. That's true. And then we do try to point that out to a jury. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, right now, not to get too deep into the weeds, but there's a difference between what you say in a deposition and the way you handle it. I'm talking about the lawyer and the way you may cross-examine at trial. Uh, typically, the depositions are not going to appear before the jury. They technically can, but if the case is on a trajectory for trial, those experts are going to be cross-examined live at trial, and we take a little bit of a different approach. Um, it just depends. I, I like to be civil, but pretty early on when they disagree that the sky is blue, I will, you know, I will kind of uh, fence with them and I, I, I won't lose my cool, but I'll, I'll press them. I'll press them. I'll call them out uh, because I want them to give me um, concessions that I can use to challenge their testimony with the court. Um, inconsistencies or making decisions on what to rely on or not. Here, here's a mistake defense experts make all the time. I wanted to give the other side some crumbs so that it would raise my credibility. So I'd come across as reasonable and you just cannot give a crack to the devil. I would say, yes, agree to obvious things, but be careful agreeing to what is suggested because they are going to get their camel nose under the tent and pretty soon the camel's going to be in the tent with you. So, so be careful about that. I've seen it happen at trial. Uh, and the expert really didn't even appreciate it. Um, you have to understand that a plaintiff's attorney cross-examining you um, will, uh, they sometimes are in a little bit of a desperate situation trying to prove their case or to get some leverage for settlement. And they'll resort to almost anything. They'll be swarmy and seductive with you. They'll be aw shucks with you. They'll be aggressive with you. They'll be intimidating. I've seen plaintiff's attorneys who have a little bit of a physique kind of lean across the table, kind of Lyndon Johnson style. You know, those great shots of him hovering over the smaller aide. I mean, all these kind of passive aggressive attempts to manipulate and intimidate. If you're going to be a testifier, you have to be immune to that and just, um, uh, you know, not let it influence you and, and push you into just agreeing for agreement's sake. One of the things that they said, which I thought was kind of interesting, they said 80% of the time, the goal of the plaintiff attorney is to make the defense witness their witness, which uh, allows you to uh, use things that they have said. Uh, to and kind of to turn it around and basically make them uh, support your case rather than uh, defending the uh, the other physician. Yes, that's true. And I often will tell either my clients or my my experts when they're about to be deposed. One of the reasons they want to depose you is to get you to say things that help them. Now, where the defense expert can be vulnerable. So let's talk about my head of the Department of Cardiology, who's not going to charge me. Um, sometimes it's difficult 
to move from the ivory tower realm where you have all the equipment you need, you have all the backup you need, and you kind of are at the bottom end of the funnel and you handle everybody else's problems. Sometimes it's hard to then disconnect and see it from the vantage point of the suburban cardiologist who's 30 years younger than you are and doesn't have all that stuff. So the notion of the being realistic versus ivory tower, you have to be more nimble and you cannot be so um, um, absolute on some things and let the attorney uh, walk you down the primrose path of agreeing to things. And that's through hypotheticals. That's through the use of literature. Most of these things are very complicated and it's not a one size fits all. So I want you to keep in mind that the standard is, is reasonable care, not perfect care, not the best care, but reasonable care by a reasonable doctor in that situation. And even if you would have done it differently or better, or you think you would have, don't set that as the standard of care. The standard of care is not the Olympic level high jump. <laughs> That's the world record there. The standard of care is something that reasonable doctors can clear who are in normal everyday situations. And so you have to adjust a little bit and testify accordingly. Um, I think that plaintiff's attorneys, and, and I do the same thing, but they will throw literature at you. Well, it says in Rosen's X, Y, and Z, isn't that the standard of care? Isn't that what you're supposed to do? The best answer to that is it depends on the clinical situation. It depends on their history. It depends on the findings. There are many different factors that will influence the application of that rule. Uh, that's not being unethical. That's not being dipsy doodle. That's, that's being true. I mean, quick war story. I was at a seminar in San Francisco in the nineties for brain damaged baby cases. And they brought in a real good plaintiff's attorney from Philadelphia. I don't think I ever caught his name, but it was risk managers and doctors and, and defense attorneys, about 2000 of us. And it was a breakout session. And this was a, a real slick guy from Philadelphia. And I'll never forget what he said. He stood up and he said, we win. Now, he's a plaintiff's attorney. So he's representing patients and families. We win when we make it simple. You win when you make it complex. And I remember thinking, and I was a younger man, and I remember thinking at that time, this is all complex. We have to show lay members of a jury, we're not raising tomato plants here. This is not bathing a, 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 a Labrador. This is dealing with a complicated organism known as a human body. And we are doing the best we can in tough situations. So to the expert, I would say, take that into account. Don't just be guided by some algorithm that somebody has tried to put together to help guide people because they're using it not as a, as a shield, but as a sword. The lawyer's using it as a sword against you. It was drafted as a shield to help protect and to help you, to help guide you, but it doesn't always fit that situation. The expert has to be nimble and graceful enough to accommodate and adapt to that. And to I was say, always, and to I was insert always their own helped. experiences. I'm sorry, Greg. No, I was always helped by having worked in four different kinds of hospitals, a university hospital, a fairly large 
community, you know, hospital and two other smaller hospitals. Because if you don't spend some time in that kind of hospital, how do you know what the standard of care is in that hospital? Exactly. And it was it was very useful that I could that I could say, yes, I'm I'm going to have a shift here where I'm going to see 25 patients. There's no other doctor in the hospital but me and the one guy who's in the ICU. So I can have a similar experience to what this doctor had. And without that kind of backup, you know, I've, I've watched doctors pummeled. Uh, and when they say, well, doctor, how much time do you spend in smaller hospitals? How much time do you spend in places where you can't call down the following people from upstairs to jump in and take a look and all that sort of thing. And you, you have to rebuild the same kind of situation that doctor was in. And that was always helpful for me as an expert. I love it. I think that's great. And I, you know, like when I'm deposing an expert, I will say, have you been sued before? Because many times they haven't. So they don't understand this scrutiny or the other one I love is, yeah, I've been sued 15 times. You've been sued 15 times and you come in here and, and are, and are critical of this guy. I mean, the, the callousness either way can be exploited. Yes. If you are acting as an expert witness for the defense, are you, do you have all the information surrounding for example, what their clinical setting is, you know, what their backup options were, what their support staff was, like, how prepared are you to kind of know, um, you know, what their setting was and, you know, as far as how much it differs from your own? Yeah, I think those are exactly the type of things that that the defense attorney can share with you when you have this thumbnail conference or meeting, you know, and, and those are the types of questions to ask if it's a difference maker for you. You know, um, I just, I'm representing somebody who's in an urgent care, just met with her the other day. Um, kind of a tough case and I won't give the facts because, uh, it's active, but, um, I was a little bit downcast about, you know, reading the record and reading the facts. I was so impressed with her. She was able to bullet point her care, why she did what she did, why referral to an emergency room was not needed. And then she educated me. She said, Mark, you need to understand something. We are not an emergency room. We don't typically see people like this. We don't have an ultrasound here. And I started to really kind of come together with, look, this is a, this is an apple. And I was thinking it was an orange. So I think that the, those are the types of questions to ask. And, and, and those are important differentiations. It, it's, it is a little bit of a game changer. I'm, I am not happy when a neuroradiologist steps forward and criticizes a family practice doctor for missing something on an x-ray yeah. or, or, you know, and so we've got to, we've got to kind of level the playing field here. If you're Michael Jordan, and you're judging somebody who's playing on an eight-foot goal, uh, and also plays other sports. Um, that that really isn't very fair. That that you yeah. you really don't represent the standard of care. 
So um, if you're going to support a colleague, be more adaptable and adjustable on those types of things. You know, it's like asking somebody who has a, a wonderful 30 year marriage and they're judging where, you know, somebody who's in their first year of marriage has had a bad fight, you know, rewind. Remember what it's like to be younger. Remember what it's like to be in a situation where it's very challenging, challenging staff, inadequate equipment, a new setting. It's a new job. I mean, factor that in. Don't judge them from, you know, you're in, in your rocking chair in front of a fireplace and you're all established and it's easy to be critical. I mean, give me a break. That's not fair. You know, it's the same or similar circumstances. That's the that's the language that the courts charge use. What right. would a doctor of reasonable prudence do in the same or similar circumstances. That doesn't just mean seeing a patient like that. That means when you're like that, when you're 32 and on your own, or when you have a weirdo situation like Wernicke's encephalopathy, I mean, give me a break. People, you know, a family practice doctor sees Wernicke's one time in their career and an expert's going to come in and say, this person was nauseous. You should have thought about Wernicke's. Give me a break. Rewind. Yeah. Get How many times have you seen it? And I love taking their depositions. And they're like, oh, well, I've never seen it. Yes, right. Or I'm a Wernicke's expert. I see it every day. Well, really? Well, this person's not. They don't see it every day. Yeah. So have a little bit of reasonableness <laughs> here in your assessment of a colleague. You know, uh, Mark, a lot of times experts have these credentials at universities, they're professors and the like, and that's supposed to kind of make it clear that they're an expert. But yes, they work in universities where they have every backup physician you want in the, in 10 minutes when <laughs> there are these hospitals. I, I worked my entire career where, where after five o'clock, I was the only doctor in the building. We were yeah. a single covered uh, yeah. ER and... Uh, if you have a university expert coming down and saying what a, a doctor would do it in that situation, I think it's it's like it's not it's apples and oranges. I used to train the medical residents and the emergency medicine residents and let them know that they were just unless they're careful, they were just going to be a witch doctor. They were going to tell the patient which doctor was going to see him next, was coming down from oh. upstairs to take a look at him. That was a and, setup, Greg. That was a, you needed to get that one in for sure. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Rick. I mean, I appreciate that. But the witch doctor concept, keep in mind, because it, when the more advanced the medical center you go to, what you actually do every day for a living without backup, who doesn't come down and look at it, changes. And uh, you you need to kind of keep that in mind. When, when somebody says to me, or I, I hear an expert say, well, I would just consult the, the, uh, the neuro-ophthalmologist on that. Yeah. How many hospitals <laughs> have a neuro-ophthalmologist right. available? Right. At, at, at 11 o'clock at night on Saturday, not very many, you know, in the state of Michigan, maybe two. Mark, do you ever uh, yeah. feel okay. it's necessary to do a video deposition uh, or is that done routinely? Uh, these people say that if an expert is evasive about answering questions that are pretty similar, simple, um, that that 
can be helpful to show the jury the evasiveness of the expert during a deposition. But I would think it would add substantial expense. You know, it adds some expense. Um, I think uh, I would grade it out as how likely do you think it is that the expert's going to act up? Uh, I've deposed some guys before. There's a guy out of Florida who's a life care doctor who behaves like a, a jackass, you know, at every <laughs> deposition. And so it's probably worth videotaping him because it, it, it it's going to it's going to show that. But um, many times it ends up being a waste. It's the same decision on whether or not to depose a plaintiff. I deposed a, a crazy lady yesterday and and she she was just off the rails. Um, and our co-defendant decided to videotape it. But I think she's going to act the same way at trial. Um, I mean, she, bless her heart. I mean, she, they said, please state your name for the record. And she started crying. And I wanted to say, you know, this isn't the hard part. <laughs> and it wasn't because she was a timid, frail gal. She was obnoxious at the highest levels, but she had been coached that she needed to really show that she was hurt. And she started crying literally before she even said her name for the record. So um, videotaping depositions is a judgment call. Um, it's, it is nice to capture them when they're acting up, but you got to set it up just so, and then to get it into evidence and to show the jury is a little bit more involved than they're making it sound in my opinion. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, a judgment call. They also talk about a strategy where you kind of begin with really simple, uh, questions, uh, reaffirming the, uh, where the medical school was that you went to in it. And uh, they actually uh, suggest that maybe there's some ways to make it look like this is this is pretty simple. I, you know, I can answer these questions. They're not hard, but gradually these questions become more and more and more related to the to the case. And the next thing you know, the the uh, attorney who was being so nice to you is really actually uh, look asking questions which will be used uh, ultimately against you. Um, Yes. Yes. And I think that that and something else that I'll mention real quick, um, avoid the, the, the Stockholm syndrome where you start to identify with the captor, understand going in that this person doesn't like you. They, they're not even going to refer to you as an expert probably. And they want to hurt the, the guy that you're trying to help or the gal that you're trying to help. So understand their motivation. There can be surface civility, but you're going to have to get abrupt pretty quick. And I mean abrupt in a nice way. Don't be condescending. Don't diss the plaintiff. There's really no reason to do that. But be rock of Gibraltar on your opinions. Um, and so, um, you know, and I will say, don't agree easy. Uh, yeah, I can tell you what medical school I went to, but they're trying to soften you up. It's a, it's a nice carpet bombing where you're given your address and you're given, yes, I did that. And yes, I agree that doctors try hard. And yes, I agree. Radical, medical records need to be complete. Be careful because eventually they'll say, and if there's not something mentioned in the records, it didn't happen. Right. Everybody's taught that, right? Never agree to that. That is an abominable suggestion. It's not true. And you're being lazy. If you agree to that, that's just not true. 
No one has a court reporter in the emergency room. And when you're helping somebody get their life saved and you didn't write down one of the white blood cell counts, that means it didn't happen. That's baloney. Don't give into that. So there are tactics, these seductive tactics, trying to be nice. Um, and you, and you, and you're, and you're like, I want this to be civil. I don't like being in this arena. I don't like contention. I, this is what you're saying to yourself as you're testifying. And he seems like a nice guy. And there's the plaintiff sitting next to him Mm -hmm. and she's in a wheelchair. And so, yeah, I, I, you know, I can see what he's saying and I can agree to that. And yeah, that's true. And the other big mistake is don't, don't damn with fate praise. Don't say, yeah, it met the standard of care. I wouldn't have done it. I mean, I, I wouldn't have done it, but, but, but it probably meets the standard of care. I mean, my gosh, yeah. don't be an expert then. That doesn't help anybody. And you don't know if you necessarily would have done it. In that situation, rewind 30 years and you're out in a small town, Texas town, would you maybe have done it the way they did it? I think the answer is probably yes. So don't judge it on the standard that you have in the university and don't say, I wouldn't have done this baloney. That doesn't help. Yeah. I think that their last statement in this, uh, uh, recording was really enlightening. They, they, they go through this idea of kind of beginning gradually and, uh, ingratiating yourself with the, uh, uh, the, the, um, expert. And then, uh, but the fact is that you're right. They're not there. That's part of a tactic. And that, that tactic will ultimately escalate to get you to agree to, just as you've said, to something that really ought not have been agreed to. And um, the, the woman who did this, uh, recording, uh, she said, the matador does not tell the bull how he's going to kill him. And and it's like, it's like, you're not going to be so clear how you're going to be discredited or attacked, but it's going to happen. It is a form of deception. And that's a lot of what lawyers do. Um, I like to think I'm trying to untangle these deceptions, but uh, deception is at the heart of a lot of this. It's play acting, it's pretend and they're pretending to like you. I will tell my clients all the time who don't seem to be sobered up by this, I will say, listen to me, look at me, please listen to me. This guy will cut your heart out and eat it in front of you if he could and if it prevails him in the case. So you do not think that he is your friend. He may be charming, he may be dressed sharp, he may be seductive, whatever he's trying to do to get you to kind of cozy up to him, and then he's going to cut your legs out from underneath you. Mark my words. So you do not agree with this guy very easily. Do not agree very easily. I can deal with the disagreements, but when you agree to a bunch of crap that I have to try to repair later because they were taking it out of context, and that's what they're going to do. That's the other thing I will preach is they are looking for sound bites. They just mm-hmm. want a couple of sound bites. Don't you give it to them. That's not right. That's not what you really feel. But they are going to try to use that as leverage with an innocent jury who is not scientifically educated. And you are going to cause problems for us. They're going to blow it up in front of the jury. And you've committed that our defendant should have done X. And I don't like that. For example, they'll say, well, we're not saying that you're critical of him. But in hindsight, he should have hospitalized the patient. I mean, that would have been the safest and best thing, right? 
Yeah, that would have been the best thing. Why are you saying that? That's not the standard. What is the best thing? And in hindsight is not the standard. Think about this. Analyze this. You know, don't give in to those to those temptations. And the other thing is, I don't this deposition's dragging on and he's getting a little bit more testy. I just want to kind of be agreeable, answer the questions, and move on. That's not our arena. This is an ugly Let's, arena sometimes. As a guy who's given a lot of depositions, when you're starting to feel that you need a break, take a break. When you think you got to have some water, you got to pee, you got to do this, because if you think it's going to end in five minutes, you're wrong. <laughs> There's more to come. And, right. and I, I think I, I, when I learned early on that most of those things, I was going to be there for four hours or something like that. Then I started feeling a little better. In fact, if it ended in two hours, I thought maybe I'd miss something maybe <laughs> and I hadn't done it correctly. Yeah. But, uh, but I think you have to, you have to understand that their job is to wear you down to a certain degree. Didn't There's, I answer that? You know, yeah. no, you get to have to go through and answer it again. And that's just part of the deal. It's a psychological pinata, and whether you're the defendant <laughs> or the expert, you have to understand that they're they are trying to maneuver you, and and this is their arena, and it many times is not that civil, even though we're governed by by rules, and you're not going to get a lot of um, um, relief from the judiciary. That's a roll of the dice too. So yes, you need yes. to use your intelligence. You need to use your reasonableness, and sometimes you're going to have to bark back in a nice way. The best way to bark back at a lawyer who is trying to get you to say something that you don't agree with is to battle them and check them with the facts and with the science. You don't have to say it meanly. You don't have to be a person who likes to argue or debate. You can say, I'm sorry, that's not correct. That's not what I said. That's not being rude. Just correct them because they're going to take it out of context. Uh, you don't have to blame, blame the plaintiff. You can say, Mr. Jones seems like a nice guy, but the reality is, is that he's a four-pack-a-day smoker. He is a heavy alcohol user, and he has compromised his health for many years. That has impact on this situation. Now, you're not being critical of the patient when you say that. Those are the reality. That's the reality of the medical facts. Don't be shy about saying that, even if the plaintiff's attorney tries to spin it and say, so you're blaming Mr. Jones for this. He didn't do the surgery on himself. You're blaming Mr. Jones for this? No, sir. What I'm stating is, is that his poor health contributed to his outcome in surgery. That's what I'm saying. And you have to say it with your chin stuck out a little bit. And if you say, well, heck, I don't want to do that. Well, let me tell you, you don't want the first time that you have to do that to be when you're sued. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm inviting you in the arena. And you know what? If it is a legitimate, justified plaintiff's case, so be it. I, I, there are many. There are many. And those cases should be set, settled. You guys know that you see doctors who aren't doing as good a job as they could do. And maybe that's a, that's a, a, a rumble strip for them. 
Maybe that keeps things going right. I'm not saying all laws or lawsuits should be banished, but because there's money associated with this and because plaintiff's attorneys can sometimes get decent amounts of money by going after doctors on situations where there was a bad outcome, it is ripe for abuse by both the attorneys and by the experts who help them. We need people to push back on that. And that's why I invite you to join this arena once a year and be involved in it. And if you can, don't charge to show your legitimacy and your passion. If you need to charge, just kind of a break-even type of charge. That's just my pitch. Wow, this is terrific. Uh, I thought that this, these uh, plaintiff experts were uh, spilling the beans, but you really spilled the beans. You, you like you really, you know. <laughs> I I remember in the past that you've emphasized so so much, you know, as a clinician that you really need to try to be nice to the patients. Uh, how important that that is in 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 your dealings, and I think that. Uh, you've just reemphasized, uh, that for us clinicians and the, um, strategy in court kind of thing and depositions is really fascinating actually, because you're right. These people are, are not your friend. They may appear to be your friend and asking soft, you know, uh, throwing in softball pitches, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. Absolutely. You're right on that. And, and no, it's my pleasure. I love being with you guys and I love helping doctors. Uh, thanks so much. I thought this was terrific. Rachel, any, any final thoughts here? No, I really enjoyed it. it inspired me to get, get in the arena. You know, you're going to have to give up your law degree though, you know, erase <laughs> that part of your. Seat, I'll be giving you, know. you a call that, you know what, that's not a, it, it depends. I mean, I'm shooting straight with you here. It's, it's like when you interview someone and they say, well, what's on the resume? And it's like, I don't care so much about what's on the resume. I care how they are when I interview them. How do they come across? Are they going to be able to right. do the job, right? And it's the same thing with an expert. I mean, the uh, different degrees are wonderful. Um, if the person is a clown, if they're arrogant, if they don't come across well, all of those things can be used to exploit them. But if they come across good, they're honest, they're humble, they're smart, they're intelligent, it's something to admire and it's an advantage. So it really just depends on how how they come across and and um, and you come across great and I'm going to be calling you to help me on some cases. <laughs> Sounds good. And remember, Rachel, don't charge. Go yeah, there. I got that. I caught that one. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, he set you up. Rick, <laughs> well would you like a wine of the month? Yeah, give us a wine. Do you have a wine, actually? I I do, and it. Uh, we always talk about uh, this is a great value, this is this or that. Here's one that isn't a great value unless you already own it. And the other night, because we've moved houses, I did open up a uh, a Chateau Latour, which is one of the five Grand Cour class wines of France. It's a it's a, only twenty years old, uh, still sitting still sitting in its original container. And you know what? There's a reason why <laughs> they get that kind of money for those wines. Chateau Latour 
uh, it's uh, 19, uh, uh, it was a 99 and it was wonderful. So if you've got the money and, uh, you've got a, a wine, uh, a purveyor of wines in your community who carries those wines, let me just tell you the one I just sampled again is worth the money. And it goes really well with meatloaf and, uh, Egg salad, well, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the problem is, Rick. You say with with that uh, 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 Philadelphia sound in your voice, the meatloaf. Uh, here we would say with a fine pate, and 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 uh, we could get away with that. Now in Texas, in Texas, you can't get away with saying fine pate. I mean, they take you out and beat you up, slap you around if you did crap like that. No, Is no, that right? take you for some good brisket. That's what we do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it goes fine with a good cheese steak. Oh, right, that good sounds good. Hey, listen, happy. thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it. Uh, Rachel, Greg, nice seeing you guys again. Thanks, thanks for listening, everybody out there. If you th- you have just gotten the the best advice you'll ever get about being an expert witness, what to do, what not to do, and how the game is played. And Rachel, you you, you can go into the business now because you're you're a nice person. You're not going to you know, you're you're a natural, Rachel. Despite my yeah. law degree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, yes. Exactly. And when, and when you add the MBA, it'll be even worse. There yeah. you go. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, oh my guys. God. Appreciate See you later, Rick. Bye bye. <laughs>